Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 119. Well, we're getting up there for January 30th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about cherry for a desktop, the ruler trick, stationary sander options, cabinet scrapers versus scraper planes, finishing suggestions for cherry, and we've got a special guest. Jay Lego is here to tell us a little bit more about his Kickstarter campaign that we so elegantly took a crap on last week. <laughs> but before we get and we to... we wonder why we don't have more guests on, you know, when you really think about it. Why don't they like us? Oh, man. All right. So before we get to that stuff, Matt, how about you give them uh, information? No, you know what? Let's do the sponsor thing. I'm so out of, out of sync here. Hold on. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it's a new, we have new sponsors, so it gets confusing for me. <laughs> All right. Here's a little word from the sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at FestoolUSA.com. And by Microjig, creators of the Gripper 3D Push Block, an American-made precision safety guidance system for the table saw and the wood shop. Visit Microjig.com newsletter to sign up for their newsletter today. Very nice. Hey, if you have comments, questions, maybe a topic suggestion you'd like us to cover on an upcoming show, you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can even leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or maybe the downloads from today's show or perhaps one of the previous episodes, you'll find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, because we have Jay in here to, to uh, have a little conversation with us, head over to that website, check out the previous episode, and you'll hear all the great controversy. Oh, yeah. It's good stuff. So speaking of Jay Lico, welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you. 
uh, we're glad to have you here, and I'm, I'm glad you contacted us to, to kind of, um, well, let's dig into this stuff because we talked about your Kickstarter campaign. And I think what you heard last week was not so, so much us even focusing on your Kickstarter. I think we were venting a little bit about Kickstarters in general, which sometimes they're, they're really awesome, and other times it's kind of questionable whether it's even worth uh, giving these people money to do what they're trying to do. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we may have, we may have made it sound like some of that angst that we had was almost directed at you. And we, we really tried to avoid that, but I think we, we failed in that regard. Um, so, yeah. So we're glad that you were uh, brave enough to come on the show and talk to us and just kind of clear the air a little bit. Let us know a little bit more about the project and anything that we may have gotten wrong in the last time, please feel free to, to set us straight. Well, um, first of all, thank you for, you know, mentioning it last week and, and, uh, on, on your Facebook page and so forth. Sure. Um, I really appreciate it. That actually helps me uh, with one of the goals, which is to just make furniture like this mm-hmm. more visible and, and, and make more people aware that stuff like this exists. Right. You know, um, that being said, the, the one thing that I do want to state outright is that um, while I do have contact with the Getty Museum, I am in no way supported by them. Right. Okay. Uh, everything else, everything that I'm, I'm doing with them, you know, I have to come up with the funding to get out there and to, you know, support my own travel and, and so forth. So while I wish that there were some museum that would come along <laughs> and, you know, write me a check, uh, it's not happening. <laughs> but si- since it is the, the original is the, a piece that they own, they do have some sort of control or they're dictating things to you in some way to say what you can and can't do, correct? Yes, there there were stipulations. It took, let me back up a little bit, it took about nine months worth of research and negotiation uh, before we were finally able to settle on a date and actually get out there and, and see the piece. Wow, um, wow. wow. So there's, it, there's quite a bit of investment, you know, in, in terms of just time alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that being the case, part of that uh, discussion was, certain things that they felt that needed to be done in order to uh, prevent someone in the future from uh, trying to pass this off as a genuine article versus a recreation. Well, doesn't that put you in a bit of a bind if if you are recreating this for your own purposes, not to make, you know, not for forgery, but you really just want to remake this. And your goal is to share that information with the rest of the world or inspire the rest of the world to to learn about these things and try to make this something that that, you know, especially like you said, it's not something that exists in the U.S., um, you're trying to popularize it to some extent and bring it back. Doesn't it work a little bit against the museum's goals then to to stop people from being able to make this? Well, I mean, that's kind of a tricky thing because the, the museum wants to promote the piece, right? Yeah, they yeah. they want to get people in there to see the piece and to appreciate it. Um, yeah, on the other hand, they're, they're playing a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, um, let's just say that they're – this has been an issue for as long as people have been making pieces and other people have been valuing them. Um, there, there will always be a question of, or an issue of people being able to make fakes. It goes on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, what in the times, New York times, uh, about two or three years back, there was an article about a, a maker in the UK who came forward and said, Oh, by the way, all of these, uh, pieces that, 
not only museums but other prominent people have purchased, I made those. Oh, geez. And I sold those through a very reputable, quote-unquote, dealer or whom we thought was reputable. reputable. Mm -hmm. So there's – it's a difficult issue. Sure. You know, there there are – uh, there are certain things that you can do to the piece such that an educated client or uh, a curator will know that mm-hmm. that is a recreation okay. and not a fake. Okay. And that's the, that's the best we can do. Okay. All right. So in terms of actually disseminating information about this, that was one of the things we brought up last week. We know there's a coffee table book, and I'm sure that will not be an instructional book. It's just pretty pictures. Um, so it, how far can you really go with showing – I mean, again, we may not be the target audience for some of this stuff, but how far are you going to be able to go in showing people how this was done? Yeah, and that's that's a good point, too. Um, well, first first of all, I should say, uh, one of the reward levels that I'm offering is instruction. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and that can be, you know, through phone call, in person, FaceTime, whatever, uh, and, and pretty much on whatever topic the the person wants to choose. Okay. Uh, um, but I've also put my contact information out there, uh, not only on the Kickstarter page, but you can also refer to uh, the web blog that, that runs alongside of that or my own website. Okay. Um, you actually had a, a really good idea that I hadn't considered, but I will now, <laughs> is the, the idea of doing a DVD. Okay, yeah. Okay, um, Originally, that's that wasn't the intent, uh, just because of the the immediate need for the piece, which is uh, the the Fortune Fellowship, which we can get into later if you'd like. But um, um, let me see does that does that address your question? Or? Well, yeah, I mean everything is pretty much laid out on on the Kickstarter page, and you can see what's what's available there. Everything from from uh, getting a copy of the book to getting updates, uh, you know, via email to getting the the prototype that you're going to make, right? That's one of the bigger prizes. That's, that's one of the, the rewards that is available. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't had any takers on that yet. Okay. So what, there's always time. What is it? Uh, the $5,000 level? Uh, believe so. Yes. Shannon, get in there, man. What's wrong with nope. you? I'm on it. Here I go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, excellent. That's yeah, you do have the corporate AMX card. You should be jumping. That's right true. In you were just, we were just talking about that. Um, well, I'm looking at the page now. You're less than 700 bucks away and you're only, you know, halfway through the process here. So I, I personally, having seen a lot of Kickstarters go through, I can't imagine you're going to have a problem getting to your goal. Um, so, so my question is when, when does this start? Like, let's say everything gets funded. When do you get to start this thing? Um, I've been working on drawings and templates and so forth since I got back from the Getty. Um, and I've, I've been looking into, um, sources and suppliers for materials. Uh, so mm-hmm. I've, I've in a sense already started, but yeah, as soon as, as soon as I've crossed the goal line, then, um, I will start going ahead and ordering materials and so forth. Okay. Awesome. I imagine you just got to get top notch stuff for something like this too. You can't just uh, get your average stuff off the pile. But you're just not going to run to the home center and grab a little bit here and there. (laughs) No, afraid that's not going to quite work in this situation. I had, I have one instructor who's been telling me you can only do this with 100 year old Corson Oak. (laughs) Well, it should be easy to find, right? uh, Yeah, that's, that would be really good material. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. So it, it's a challenge. And, and, and too, that, that is another problem is, um, 
just sourcing some of this material, um, you know, sawn veneers, it's really easy to get commercially sliced veneers, but I only know of two suppliers um, in the world that will supply commercially sawn veneers in all the species. Sure. And they're both. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, before we let you go, if you could just tell us a little bit about that fellowship uh, program and exactly where this table fits into the whole thing. Okay. Um, it's called the Michael Fortune Fellowship, and it's part of Mark Adams School of Woodworking. Mm-hmm. You Once you go through their master's program, um, then this is another option if you so choose. It's uh, an area of further study where you start to focus and specialize on a specific discipline, for instance, marquetry or carving or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you work together with Michael to design the piece, to plan it out, and so forth. And then uh, at, the, at the end of the, the program, you have to actually build the piece and bring it to jury. And there are something like 10 or 12 different categories that it gets judged on uh, by a panel of nationally recognized uh, woodworkers, uh, editors from woodworking magazines, anybody that's got anything to do with woodworking. No pressure. Uh, yeah, no pressure. You know, it's kind of like going through your dissertation defense all over again. Oh, man, that is crazy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and that's essentially what this piece is for, is Excellent. to go ahead and make that requirement. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, we, we absolutely do wish you luck. We're glad that you were able to, to come on the show and maybe, you know, especially if this does go forward, I would love to have you back on the show. Give us some updates and uh, tell us how things are going. And um, yeah, we'd yeah, be glad absolutely. to have you back. Sure thing. Uh, any, any time, just let me know. And, and um, you know, people can always refer to the web blog, which I'm going to try to keep updated as mm-hmm. best I can. And We'll go from there. Okay, sounds good. Thanks a lot, Jay, and good luck with the project. We will, once again, link in the show notes to uh, to this awesome undertaking, and I think we're all looking forward to seeing what you can do with it. Yeah, definitely. Good luck, Jay. Yeah. Good luck. Th- thank you very much, and thanks again for, for uh, having me and mentioning this. Oh, anytime, Jay. Thanks a lot. Sure. All right. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, there you go. So, uh, you know, I just I thought that was fair, you know, because last week we were definitely a little hard on on the whole concept and I thought it was fair to let him uh, come on the show and just say his piece. Yeah, definitely. We don't want to come across as being biased on anything, although it is one of my favorite ways to be. But uh, We kind of yeah. always are. I mean, what are we going to do? That's just who <laughs> we are. Isn't that kind of what this show's about? <laughs> yes, it's Mark, Matt, and Shannon's biases. That's all yeah. it is. It's uh, our way or the highway. That's Thanks it. for playing. All right. So uh, we're going to move on to some of our regular sections here, but we are skipping what's on the bench because there just isn't a whole lot on any of our benches. And in the next two shows, this show and the next one, we're really going to focus on answering questions because we have a backlog of emails that you wouldn't believe. And we're, we are trying to answer them all, and that's why we have a backlog. Uh, we yeah, we only get the to last time I was looking at these, I was sitting on the toilet. My legs went numb. That's how, you know, how many there are. Wow. So yeah, just a little perspective. There. You, sure that that was, you sure that was because of the email? No, well, it could have been because I had tacos <laughs> the night before and the plates around the corner here. Yeah. I'm not convinced that's actually beef. Oh boy. Wonderful. <laughs> oh boy. All right. So around the web, we do have a couple of links that I want to mention. These were all sent in by uh, listeners. Uh, Brian Bartholomew, um, sketching with a bandsaw. Uh, so no, he's not the one doing the sketching. Brian sent the oh. link in. That um, seems like really hard because my hand would cramp after trying to lift that bandsaw. Does he put yeah. the pen on the bottom or does he flip it upside down, maybe put it in where the 
the uh, tension guide is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this <laughs> I, I might be confused on my links here. Anyway, on who sent what in, but there's this awesome video of basically a motorized arm with a chainsaw attachment oh, that yeah. that goes into this log and does a couple things. And next thing you know, it's a it turns into like a nested set of like four or five tables. Right. It's like the weirdest yeah. thing. You just got to see it. It was, um, it was like NASA meets woodworking or something. It was yeah. like done in a clean room. It yeah, weird. it was unbelievable. So definitely check that out. There's another one here by uh, Jim sent us a link for this. Um, this is the one sketching with a bandsaw. Uh, a woodworker named James McNabs makes these cityscapes out of uh, just scrap oh, yeah. wood. Unbelievable. So uh, we'll put the link in the show notes for that. And I mean, these things are just amazing. You just got to see it. It's, it's, it's definitely art. Uh, Matt, isn't that the thing you linked and said that that's what I can do with my scrap wood? That was exactly it. That's exactly what I was going to say. I'm like, I saw that immediately. The first thing that popped in my head was Shannon. There you go. Uh, And we also have another one. You guys remember Brian Grabsky. He's uh, the dude that makes these, not only makes great furniture, but makes amazing videos uh, highlighting things in the furniture. Mm -hmm. And this particular video is showing a hidden drawer mechanism and actually shows the lock system and everything. So it's all the stuff that you always want to see, but no one ever shows you. And everybody loves it. Who doesn't love a hidden drawer, right? So this is a exactly. real stylistic Except I can't video. find my keys, and it's hidden in, in the hidden drawer. drawer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, check that one out. We'll put the link in the show notes, and you will definitely enjoy that. So, guys, let's get to this email and start cranking out some answers, hopefully accurate, to some of these questions. <laughs> nah. <laughs> we'll do our best. Okay. Well, we'll add the first one here, and it starts out, hey, y'all, it's me again. I am making a computer slash writing desk for my daughter and using Liptus for the bottom frame and thinking of Cherry for the top. Now, my concern is that Cherry may be too soft for, say, a writing surface and leave indents in the wood. Your thoughts? And that's from Paul Jordan. Let me jump in on this one first, and then I want to get your guys, your your all perspective on this y'all's. one. Uh, y'all's. I, uh, I made a cherry desk for my daughter a while ago. Uh, it got sold in a yard sale uh, this past summer. Apparently, I was not home when this happened because mm-hmm. I think it went for like ten dollars. Be quite honest with you, they just really wanted to get it out of the way. Nice, <laughs> yeah. I, I almost cried, uh, but the writing surface itself was cherry. Now she didn't do a lot of writing on it, but I didn't really notice too much. Maybe she just doesn't write really, really hard. Maybe she was using a soft lead pencil or something. But I didn't have too many indentations on it, so I wonder if. The issue might be because I know there are certain hardwoods out there that are not technically hard like a maple would be. Yeah. Um, I've never had an issue with cherry with uh, writing on it. Uh, Then again, most of the surface I had was the heartwood, which tends to be typically harder than, say, the sapwood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cherry in general is going to be a little bit soft. Like it's one of those woods that if you have a a little bit of a fingernail on your thumb and you kind of dig it into the surface, you can make a dent into it and if you think like a ballpoint pen that could very well make i mean that that would make grooves and lines in it Um, but sometimes i wonder with a writing surface these days i don't know you guys uh or well not you guys matt um you have kids in school how much writing do they actually do these days (laughs) they still do a fair amount we do a lot actually at the at the kitchen table but most of the stuff is like just you know how like we used to have say a a notebook and you had to break the paper out and you would do like an individual sheet of paper Mm -hmm. everything now is just workbooks i mean all their textbooks are workbooks i I remember getting a textbook actually puts a single sheet of paper down on a writing surface now it's usually part of 
a pad a or stack a or, something. or something like that. Exactly. But yeah, even with these these workbooks, I mean, there there's always, you know, a whole bunch of them there. So typically, yeah, it's you're not going to have just one sheet of paper between your pen surface, your pen tip and the surface of the wood. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think ultimately, yes, it will get grooves in it, but only if you're going like you know, old school style and you're really hammering home on a single sheet of paper. Is it going to be be really bearing down? I I can add a little bit to this and say, um, my boss actually has a desk made out of cherry. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's right across the hall from me and he's old school enough that he does actually write stuff with a pen all day long. (laughs) Right. And, um, you know, this was a, it was a period piece. So it actually has a, an inlaid leather blotter on it, but it's an enormous desk with like these little pull out trays and everything. And he never ends up writing on the leather blotter. He's always like parked around the corner and writing directly on the cherry surface, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, with a modern ballpoint pen. Mm -hmm. And he is like fastidious about his furniture. He's a collector of furniture and there are no marks on his desk, and I don't think he would do it if he saw a lot of marks like that. Yeah. And I think the key is, is yeah, Cherry's softer, but if it's a desktop, you're not going to just do like a shellac or oil-rubbed yeah. finish. Yeah. You're probably going to put some sort of varnish on it. Mm-hmm. And that varnish is quite a bit harder than the um, the Cherry right. itself. So I think adding, you know, add all this up. No one's using just a single sheet of paper. You know, the, the varnish t- toughens the whole thing up. I think you'll probably be okay. Yeah. Um, look at it this way. I'm sitting at an, and well, antique. Uh, this was my wife's. Oh God, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Uh, this is my wife's. <laughs> it's uh, very, very old. <laughs> desk when she was a little girl. Um, and we inherited it from her parents. It's made out of pine. And, you know, I don't have any marks on this. I mean, and she was going through elementary school and all that when, you know, we still had like handwriting right. booklets and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are no marks on it. I'm looking at it right now. So, and pine is certainly a heck of a lot softer than cherry. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so, very good. Okay. Cool. Shannon, you're up next. Yay. Uh, let's see. I need some advice. Not me. We know Shannon. Yeah. Oh, Oh, this is from Jim Solos, just so I can be clear. Uh, Jim just purchased a new set of good quality Lee Valley chisels, and he's about to begin sharpening. This will be my first attempt at hand sharpening with water stones. I've been practicing with my old chisels and am pleased with the results I'm getting using the MK2 honing jig. However, I'm confused about one thing. I've heard a lot about David Charlesworth's ruler trick when lapping the back of a plane, and it makes sense that you only need to really worry about the back of the plane near the cutting edge. However, I recently watched a video by Danette Polhowski from Lee Nielsen, and he specifically says, do not do the David Charlesworth ruler trick. Mm, It's a bad thing to do to your chisels. Neanderthal fight. (laughs) (laughs) What do you guys do? Do you lap and polish the entire back of the chisel right to the handle, as Polhowski says, or is the Charlesworth ruler trick actually okay? Of all the sources on the net, you three guys are the ones I trust. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> well, in that case. What do you do? Find a new source, Jim. That's the yeah. first thing. If I can make a recommendation of a couple other podcasts. Um... <laughs> That's a fine woodworking to a podcast. They might be, the, <laughs> might be better for this. Uh, well, sh- here's what the say, thing. What, what the ruler trick is doing is not so much polishing the back. You're not lapping the back. Um, so what Deneb 
and Charlesworth are talking about are kind of different things. Now, let me say, first of all, Deneb is correct. Don't use the ruler trip on the back of a chisel because you absolutely need that back to be flat. That's your reference surface. Mm -hmm. If you've ever tried to mortise in, say, a hinge, and you need to drop your chisel right in that knife line, and if you are, you know, the dust on a gnat's wing too far out, the hinge is going to be loose. So if the back of the chisel or the face of the chisel, the flat part, has a bevel on it, it's going to be really difficult to do that. You're not going to be able to reference right in that line. That's why you don't do the ruler trick on the back of your chisels. But what David uh, Charlesworth is talking about is not lapping and polishing that face. It's basically when you go to remove the burr on the back of the blade, after you've done sharpening on the bevel, you go to remove the burr, you set it up on the ruler so you're whatever, half a degree, and you swipe off the burr with that. Now, it does create the tiniest, tiniest of a micro bevel, um, and, and, and you're done. You know, the, the polishing part that Deneb is talking about is actually the, the initial lapping of this, of, of the chisel back. So it's a fine line, but they're a little subtle. So, you guys agree? Yeah, well, let me ask you this, because I actually have done a variation of this that is exactly what they're saying not to do. And it's only something that I do on trouble um, tools that, that for some reason, and uh, maybe it's just me, there are some tools, and they tend to be the cheaper tools, that I just can't get the back perfectly flat when I'm using it on its own. You know, and this happens with my uh, my little marples set that I have. It just it always gives me trouble. So what I decided to do when I was lapping the back was to try the ruler trick. But here's the thing: I don't use a ruler. I actually use like a very very tiny feeler gauge. So what I'm doing is raising the back up a few inches back from from the tip, raising it by, I don't know, maybe a thousandth, two thousandths. And this way, I actually am still lapping the back and I'm getting enough registration that I'm flattening a good portion of it because I've only raised it up a teeny tiny amount. So it's kind of a variation of the ruler trick, but I'm not right. actually um, I'm not actually just doing it to remove the the burr. Well, that's the key difference, though, is you're actually lapping a wider section yeah. than that sixty fourth of an inch that Charlesworth talks about. Gotcha. So that and and to address his question, do we actually do this? No, I don't lap all the way up to the handle. No, it takes too I, long. Right. Um, you know, unless it's one of my lineals and chisels, in which case it's already flat all the way up to the up to the socket. Mm -hmm. But if I'm rehabbing an old one, I do like the the last inch because that's all the part you're only registering. Yeah. I mean, you're not registering all the way at the back of that chisel. If you were pounding a chisel that deep into the wood, you're never going to get it out. Right. <laughs> so, um, no, I I don't bother with that. So essentially, Mark, that's you know, you're doing the exact same thing. You're just pulling that lapping up like an inch or something. Yeah. And on my good chisels and my good tools, they don't need that treatment. So I actually right. do. And I don't polish, just like you said, I don't polish the entire thing. I just polish the bottom, maybe inch, inch and a half, whatever's comfortable, but doesn't necessarily need to be the entire thing. Right. Oh, See, I've never had to worry about that because I just don't have good quality tools when it comes to something like a nice chisel. That so, just uses his uh, belt sander to sharpen, so it doesn't matter. That's exactly it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but, no, I mean, to me, the, the whole thing with the, the, the Charles Worth ruler trick, I mean, most of the time, whenever I think of that, I always think of a hand plane blade uh, versus the chisel. And mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know why that's always – when I've heard of that trick, that's the one the – the blade that pops into my mind is the, the wider uh, hand plane. But I, I have never done it. I tried it once, and I guess maybe I just I don't I, I I did I fell back into what I like to do before, which is just the good old fashioned 
you know, polish up that one inch or so away from the edge of the bevel. Yeah, well, if you don't need it, then why bother doing it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's a problem solver for me, so... Right. All right, uh, let's move on to the next one. It's a question from Nate. He says, there are several types of tools that I don't hear discussed often. Can you discuss the appropriate uses and differences of vertical belt sanders, horizontal belt sanders, and disc sanders, and also scraping planes versus cabinet scrapers? So let's separate that, into, <laughs> let's separate that into two very distinct categories. <laughs> let's let's yeah, throw so, in a few other just random tools into that. I, I, have two que- I have one question, but it's broken into ten parts, which are each broken into three parts with subparts for, of each one of those. Uh, vanilla provided an outline. Please yeah. follow along. All right, so we were talking about stationary sanders here um, i actually have a vertical sander that can turn into a horizontal so it's the powermatic combination machine it's got a disc Ooh, sander on one side former yeah it is and it goes and on the belt sander side you can kind of move it into diff- different positions now here's the thing i can't exactly tell them exactly what each one does and what you can use it for i can tell you from my experience what <laughs> what i use and what i don't use um, i hardly ever use that belt sander at all like for anything, it's too short to use for like legs. If you had a big old horizontal belt sander and you might put a, a tapered leg that's been sawed and, and you just want to kind of clean up the whole edge in one shot, it, right. it's too short for that. So I don't use it for that. Uh, and it just doesn't really come in handy for anything else. I'm sure if I thought about it more, I might be able to come up with something to do with it, but I, I just don't. So the disc sander is really the only reason I have that whole tool. And the disc sander does come in handy for uh, sanding the um, end grain of a workpiece or working on it. just anytime you need to sand something down in a fixed position, the disc sander does a really good job. It's very aggressive, but it does a really good job of um, of doing that for me. So I don't know, for me personally, if I had... Uh, if I had the funds to get a big horizontal belt sander and it's got to be one of those long ones, that would actually be kind of nice to have in the shop to, uh, yeah, to be able like to sand a pitching it. machine. You could put like a <laughs> yeah. block in front of it and drop tennis balls in there. That's probably what I would do if I was in the shop for too <laughs> I'm long. I'm pretty sure that's not in the manual. <laughs> Here, catch. Um, but yeah, <laughs> didn't, imagine. Didn't Norm do a show just on that topic? Uh, on on uh, tossing balls and yeah. things. As long as you wear your safety glasses, it's okay. <laughs> That's right. Your prescription <laughs> lenses, it's, it's just fine. Uh, yeah, so for me, I think that large horizontal belt sander would be handy. I've used one at um, William Ng's school. Really, really awesome, especially if you're doing like a big old tapered leg. Uh, but uh, the shorter ones, I just don't find a whole lot of use for, but that's just me. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that to add? You know, don't have one, never used one. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I haven't either. I've seen them. The only time I, whenever I think of something like uh, the belt standards, like what you're describing was when we reviewed the uh, puzzle magic DVD, that was the only time I ever thought, saw one and thought I could oh. almost see myself using that because, uh, um, was yeah, that Paul Romer? Right. Yeah. He, he used one in there and that's why he was really, really able to clean up his edges awful fast and, you know, and, and kind of sign a kind of st- odd shaped pieces too. We build around some edges over and everything. Yeah. Flatten it down real nice. Yeah. But other than that, I just, I, I look at pieces in my, in my shop and think, you know, it'd be nice to be able to hit this edge or something. If I had say one of those horizontal belt sanders or something, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I've never really had any experience. I mean, I'm excited. I just got a spindle sander last year. I just, I feel like I'm really stepping up in the world. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I would definitely say, you know, hold off. Think about it. Think about what each tool does and try as you're building your your next few projects, think about where you might be able to incorporate that. And if you can't think of anything, then don't buy it, you know, (laughs) and don't waste your money. One thing I will say, though, is a disc sander probably more than likely will come in handy at some point. And that's just from from my personal bias, which is what we're all about. Right. 
Exactly. Well, you know, with the disc sander, let, let me ask this. When, I've seen this, and this probably was actually with Norm, and if not, at least uh, uh, Scott Phillips, where sometimes like the, the disc sander is really good to be able to, say, uh, work on, on a circle. You know, like with mm-hmm. a bandsaw, you could set up a jig where you're just kind of spinning it through the blade and you get that nice circle right. top or whatever you're working on. Yep. And I, I'm pretty sure I've seen the same exact thing with, with a disc sander where they're able to kind of go through there. I don't know if it's just because the disc sander face is a little bit smaller than, you know, say the uh, the belt sanders or something. It seems like it was good. It would be the same exact action. Yeah, yeah. I, I know I saw David Marks do a number of things on woodworks with, with his um, disc sander that I kind of locked yeah. away in the back of my head, like, ooh, that's he always a had a idea. jig set up to cut a specific angle or something like that. Like making, yeah. he was doing a long inlay, so he had to make a very long scarf joint, and he made a little jig that you just slide yeah. that little that thin cool. piece in there, and and it there just makes go. a perfect sweet uh, scarf joint. So yeah, I, I definitely think disc sander is good, but the other two, I just see them as optional and hold off. You might be able to save save your money if you don't need them, then don't buy it. Yeah, I mean, the only time. I'm sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the, the, unless you have a corner in your shop that really needs to be filled and you've got money <laughs> yes. that you were just going to throw into the oven anyways, I mean, <laughs> yeah. go for it. There you go. That's where the beer fridge goes. Mm-hmm. The the only time I've I've used a disc sander like that was in a in a another shop. I think it was at a Woodcraft or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that was actually for truing up the ends of blanks for a lathe. When when the end has to be square because it's referencing up against a bushing or something like that, mm, okay. um, those disc sanders are awesome on ingrain, especially like really nasty species like bubinga ingrain. Oh yeah, that like you need ridiculous abrasive in order to be able to do anything to it. So. Yep, yep. And uh, bubinga is just a bully. It is. It it will knock you around and smack you in the face. Um, you know, Daryl Peart in his book has a jig for rounding the or pillowing the ends of ebony plugs. And it's, it, it relies on the belt sander too. So there's quite a few things. And a lot of the really cool stuff does involve jig, uh, jiggery. Yeah. It's usually ingrained too that you're shaking. Yes. Yeah, exactly. All right. So uh, let's move on to the next one. Uh, this one is from Greg. He says, I'm getting ready to make the weekend but, wall shelf. Oh, we, hey, we, didn't address, uh, we didn't address the scraping and cabinet scrapers. But, uh, yeah, thank you, Shannon. Nate. Yes, yeah. Nate. Sorry, Nate. I'm looking out for you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm in such a rush here. Um, okay, so he did ask, what about our thoughts on scraper planes versus cabinet scrapers? And it's, it's so funny. I keep, I keep talk, like hitting topics that I just wrote about for this, uh, for this new book that was an exact thing I talked about. But before I, I talk about it, let me hear from the guys who are a little <laughs> bit more uh, handle focused than I am. What do you guys think? Well, preference. Um, do you I even mean, they use them? they do the same thing. Yes. <laughs> they both cut. Their cutting action is exactly the same. Yeah. The issue with a cabinet scraper is it's got a shorter sole, so it will just like you know a short hand plane. It'll ride the peaks and valleys of a board. Um, a scraping plane has a longer sole, so it's going to ride over the tops of those. It's going to help flatten out a surface a lot more effectively than a small cabinet scraper. Right, right. Well, how about price too? Because if you're looking for one of these things, what is it made after the Stanley 112? Is that what it's called, the scraper plane? Sure. That sounds right. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, if, if you... <laughs> you guys suck. Well, um, <laughs> when, when I get above number eight in the Stanley numbering system, I, I have no idea. Yeah. All right. So let's say you're trying to track down either of these tools used. Let's compare it to like a number 80 cabinet scraper uh, versus the 112. I, I'm pretty sure the 112 is going to be pretty difficult to, to find. And if you do find it, it's going to be expensive. So if yeah. you have to go new on that and you go to you know either Lee Valley or Lee Nielsen you're spending quite a few bucks to get that versus what you might be able to get a number 84 
Right. Yeah. One thing with the the uh, the, the the higher number one. Let's just call it the higher number, the one twelve. <laughs> um, my thought on that is the way that you hold the number eighty is it's side by side. You're almost kind of holding it like a miniature uh, bicycle, kind of like handlebar, like style. a spoke shave. Exactly. And that, but with the other one, it is held just like a plane. So it makes me think about your, your body itself, the mechanics of your body, how you're applying pressure, yeah. you know, and it just seems like with my experience, it's pretty limited so far. I, I do own both. I've used both limited, literally limited. I, I haven't used it that often, but I've noticed that with the cabinet scraper itself, my action is completely different than it is with the scraping plane. The scraping plane is very much, I find myself using it just as I would my, my regular bench planes, which makes me think about the type of pressure you're going to apply. It's a little bit easier to me. Like, you know, like you oftentimes want to kind of come in like a best described as maybe like an airplane, like you're going to come in, touch down and take right back off again. So you're not really hitting the ends. Mm -hmm. And that to me, the action is just so much easier with a hand plane, uh, the 112 versus the 80, where the 80 is just, I'm sure you could do it, but just having your hands side by side to me doesn't feel as natural as being able to come in with yeah. uh, the hand one after the other. Well, and not to mention yeah. just overall because of that fatigue. I mean, if, you, yeah. if you're pushing using your upper body, your arms, and you've got your thumbs helping, you know, kind of position everything, you are going to fatigue much faster than if you've got your strong arm behind this plane body, even though it is a scraper, it's still a, a plane body. Um, you've got your strong arm behind it, and now you can get your lower body involved. And I think that, that you could definitely do a lot more scraping that way than you can with the number 80. And I think that's why traditionally the scraping plane is used for much larger surfaces. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's bringing a much bigger tool to a bigger job instead of trying to do the whole thing with a little number 80. Right. And, and then another thing with the, uh, the scraping plane uh, is that the uh, angle can actually be adjusted. So, you know how as the, the edge starts to wear off a little bit, like maybe if you just, you know, kind of lean it forward just a little bit more, you can either ink a little bit, get a little bit more out of it, or even kind of adjust it for like, if it really is like super tricky, maybe you can kind of finesse it just a little bit more to get, um, a better result from it, perhaps. I yeah. mean, I know you definitely can switch it back and forth. Yeah. Now, the the sort of counter argument to that is if you're fairly new and you're not all that familiar with how to adjust these things, that adjustability will screw with you. Because yes, it will. Because <laughs> I've played with a couple of them. I, I used to have one of the small scraper planes uh, mm -hmm. until I sold it because I never used it. I, I like because they gave me the option to move the angle. I did. And then it was like impossible to find the perfect <laughs> angle of attack to make this thing work. So that, that may make the tool a little bit more finicky. Yeah, it, yeah. And I actually have had that, that problem when I first got the, uh, the larger one, yeah. I did just that. I followed the instruction word for word. And then there was that part in the back <laughs> of my mind, which always happens. It says, hey, just play with it a little bit. You can <laughs> turn get it. Down. Just turn it. You, you can finesse it. You'll get a better result because you're you and yeah. you know how this works out. And so I did do that. And I've had problems since then getting it finessed right back to where it's supposed to be. Because once again, there's that little subconscious going, no, you're right. They're wrong. <laughs> right. You're Matt. You can do anything. Yeah, remember that number four and a half? <laughs> Think about what you did to that. Oh, great. You okay. made a compass plane. I mean, <laughs> you knew you needed a compass plane. That's right. Exactly. The banana plane. All right. So I don't the, know why they don't call me. Uh, is it okay for me to go to the next one or anything else yes. I need to do? Yeah, we're okay, done with the 10-part question. All right, just checking. All right, okay. So Greg wrote in and he said, I'm getting ready to make the weekend wall shelf, which is a, a project I made on the Wood Whisper a while back. Uh, after Christmas, and I'm really trying to research finishing before I move into my first real or good woodworking project. I'm using cherry instead of mahogany, and I want a natural cherry color. I think the wood is beautiful enough, and staining would take away from the piece a little bit. 
What are your suggestions for finish? I like the look of armor seal, but I don't want the cherry to darken too much extra than it will on its own. I plan on sealing with shellac and then the armor seal. At the same time, maybe shellac, then water-based poly or lacquer. I'm just not sure if oil will speed up the process of darkening. On the other hand, as good as some water-based finishes are, nothing compares, in my opinion, to oil. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, love the show, Greg. So, um, cherry, it's going to darken just about, you know, no matter what you do, no matter what yeah. you put on it, it's going to darken. It's inevitable. Inevitable. Yeah, it's it's like a teenager. It's going to do what it wants. It's going to do whatever it wants, <laughs> and it's going to be mad at you for bringing it into the world. Uh, yeah, so no matter what you do, it's going to darken. I don't know. I mean, if you put oil on something and then put it out in the sun, you might be able to make a difference in, a, in the short term in what cherry does, but in the long term, it's always going to pretty much get to the same place. So I would really pick the properties of the finish that, that match what you're really looking to do with this piece. If it's a wall shelf, it's not really going to get a whole lot of wear and tear. So you don't necessarily need anything more than a couple coats of armor seal. Um, you could certainly do that pre-coat of shellac if you're concerned about like blotchiness and things like that. But we know what Glenn Huey says about blotch. What, um, what's he say? What does he say? Wood, blo- wood blotch is get over is another man's figure. No, I think he says get over it or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's what <laughs> Chuck Bender says that. Like ch- cherry blotches, suck it up or something. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. yeah. We'll <laughs> go with next. The other one in my head, I don't think it's family friendly, so we'll yeah. just skip that. Um, so either way, if you want, you can do that shellac seal and then hit it with the armor seal. Uh, but ultimately, it's not really going to impact the final destination color that that cherry is going to get to. So if you're curious about the water-based stuff, there are some great water-based finishes out there. Uh, Enduro Var by General Finishes is one that I, I've uh, had a lot of fun with, and I think it really gives a very, if you could say such a thing, a very oil-like finish to uh, something that is not oil, which is pretty cool. Uh, and right. la- if, lacquer if would be I fine, too. If I can throw something totally different. Do it. And if uh, uh, Rob Boas is listening, he'll love it. Oh, us, don't but... even do No. There is no Rob Boas satisfaction in this it's show. It's not whatsoever. traditional oil and wax, okay? I tested the new um, Masterpiece finish, the Charles Brock three-part dealio. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that looked freaking awesome on Cherry. Did it? Okay. It doesn't really darken it more than kind of bring out the the kind of pinkish amber overtones. Yeah. Um, and it just makes it like really, really silky. What, so, run, run through that real quick. What is the finish? It's it's basically, if you can apply paste wax, you can apply this finish. Um, each one of them, I'm so out. Now, you got, now you got me <laughs> trying to remember exactly which one is which. But like the first one, you know, wood, dry wood is really, really thirsty. So it soaks up stuff really, really fast. Mm-hmm. So the first one kind of like quenches the thirst and gets it kind of conditioned. Uh, the second one is kind of like a, um, a medium coat, does a little bit of, obviously not in cherry, but it does a little bit of pore filling, starts to establish the build mm-hmm. a little bit. And then the third one's kind of your your finishing touch, and that's what you work to whatever sheen you want. Um, it just, it's so easy to put on. I mean, you use like a paper towel, rub it in, <laughs> let it dry, mm-hmm. rub another coat on. Um, and I think it's recommended to do like two of the first jar two of like the second jar and then one to whatever of the last one until you get the desired sheen that you want and it it gives you that you know hand rubbed beautiful finish um i actually don't know too much about the durability but i know um uh, charles brock uses it on his chairs yeah so those get a lot of wear and tear i think it just kind of gets better with age and and you're right it's a wall shelf 
you know, what, depending on where you're going to put it, unless it's like a wall shelf in like a machine shop, right, <laughs> you right. know, if it's a wall shelf in the bathroom, it's going to get downy soft toilet paper put on it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So it's a, really ultimately any finish is going to work for this. And I think a lot of times when you have to pick a finish, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten is, is to work with the finish you're comfortable with. Which finish can you apply with some level of success? Exactly. You know, because ultimately so many of these finishes will actually work, but you know, we're woodworkers. We like to get picky about things and you can really stress about what the different properties are and stuff like that. But sometimes you just got to pick something that you know how to use, use it, put it on there and then observe it. Because what, one of the best things you can do is finish a bunch of projects and observe them over time. Learn for yourself instead of, uh, you know, taking everything for, for what you've read in a magazine or a book that something will do this in five years. See for yourself what it does. You can fix just about anything that happens if, if something goes wrong. Um, <laughs> so, so do it, observe it, and then uh, you'll have your own experience to draw from in the future. Yeah, and if you don't like it, that's a great opportunity for you to go back and maybe build another one. And experiment with something else, right. you know. And and I, I looked up. I think uh, Glenn Huey's uh, 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 quote for splotch is uh, "splotch smotch," or something like that. Splotch. That's a good one. I like it. Yeah. All right. Let's throw another one in here because we got a few extra minutes. This one is another finishing question from uh, Jeff. He says, thanks for the great show you put on, dedicated listener. My question came to mind because you recently discussed how to eliminate the bumpy feeling that dust nibs can leave in a finish. I'm after the opposite effect. I would actually like to know how I can make a clear gloss finish more grippy. I'm making a fishing net as a gift, and I don't want it to be too slippery when in use. Any thoughts? So the yeah, opposite. That's interesting. Mess with the spray and get that nice orange peel effect. <laughs> there you go. Dump a little <laughs> sand in the uh, in your H- HVLP gun. That'll be fine. <laughs> that's actually what I was thinking is is it there, <laughs> is it there like a like uh, when when you have something that is like a, a satin finish or uh, like even a, a semi uh, glossy or something like that, isn't isn't it like some sort of additive that they put in there some really fine mm-hmm. you know that 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 more or less helps to create that opaqueness because yeah. really that's what you're doing is it's the same exact thing that you're starting out with with a gloss it's just that you're adding this like extra additive is the only thing i can come up with yeah. to create this opaqueness well they're basically schmutz in the bottom the schmutz there you go there you, the flat yeah, find a bunch of old cans dig out that schmutz and just put it in your new one let's be professional here guys it's flatteners okay um all right so one one thing i'm thinking and this reminds me of uh the epoxy floor that i just had done they pour like a sand. They sort of broadcast a sand over the surface and that embeds itself in the finish. I wonder if this is something you're really concerned about. Could he put on a nice wet coat of finish and then try to somehow blast a little bit of uh, like a handful of silica sand, a very fine sand, and just get that in the surface? So you can't really see it so much unless you get the right light on it, but you can certainly feel an extra bit of grippiness. What about just using, you know, not sanding nearly as much? Like, say, if you're going to finish off with a 300 or something, just mm-hmm. go backwards. <laughs> you yeah. know, just 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 knock down the highest parts that are obviously going to be semi-painful. Because let's get serious. A really, you know, grippy uh, finish does feel really uncomfortable in your hand. But if it's if you don't spend as much time on it, I mean, it'll get worn down over time. But anything's going to get worn down. Even if you add something to it, yeah. it's going to get worn down. So maybe just... I don't know, play, play with the sandpaper or something. Well, and- I mean, I would think, you know, the typical whatever schedule that we follow of apply, finish, and then sand between coats, just don't do that. If yeah. I go back, you know, go way, way back to my first couple of projects where I didn't know any better, 
and I still have some of them, little boxes and things floating around where I didn't sand between coats. Right. And I mean, it's a really grippy finish. You know, it raises the grain. Um, and, and then if you don't sand that down in between and the little dust nibs that settle in it and all that stuff, just don't sand that out. I think you're still going to get a nice clear gloss finish. Yeah. But you know, if you were to look at it in a raking light, it'll look bumpy. It won't have that mirror look to it just because you didn't sand between coats. That would be probably the simplest thing. Yeah. You know, that's actually a great idea. If he just kind of takes the handle once it's finished, maybe sand it to, I don't know, 80 grit, call it done at like 80 or 120 and then dip the handle in water for a few oh, seconds. Man. Just totally get the whole thing so that the the surface totally gets raised consistently all the way across and then start finishing it. That would be cool because the thing is that, that I don't like about the whole just relying on dust nibs is that's so random and just right. not intentional looking to me. You know what I mean? So if, if you do the grain raising, that's consistent enough over the whole surface that it, it may come off as an intentional aspect of, of what you're doing. So maybe try that. Yeah. yeah. Hmm, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's going fishing. All right. Yeah. Okay. Do we have, what is it? 450? All right. Uh, let's do you guys see a quick one in here that we can do i didn't think we'd go through these this we've fast. got one on facebook actually about uh do it uh do it do it where is it do it uh, let's do see it. from michael corwin um <laughs> sorry yes good he talks about saw stop matt like this um, oh it's from michael corwin he says hey guys i've got my new shop pretty much set up except for a good dust collection system my main machines are saw stop jet joiner planter combo an 18 inch bandsaw router table I currently have a general one and a half horsepower dust collector with a homemade cyclone drum. My question is, would it be overkill to get a clear view cyclone and run ducting to these tools? Or should I keep my current dust collector and get another small unit or two to feed all of my machines? My shop is 22 by 16 and I don't have an electrician to put in a 30 amp breaker. So help. Thanks guys. Well, if he doesn't have the means to do it is, does that like, disqualify the question <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. if, oh i'm sorry i misread that he says i did have my electrician okay. put in a 30 amp break i was gonna say yeah, you're like, right i was like that's kind should of i get this because i because i can't i just want to know should i um <laughs> exactly. sorry about sense. that yes he does have a 30 amp breaker for a cyclone <laughs> unit should i decide to go that route i can read thanks matt you're wearing off on me <laughs> there you go all right so he wants to know if he should get a clear view he's got a relatively small shop but he does have a saw stop and I guess other tools that he would want to hook up in line um, to the clear view. Right. That's right. Uh, well, I can just say at currently, uh, I think people remember back when I answered the question about, Hey, what kind of dust collector do you have? And I said the basic, um, <laughs> a basic one, a basic <laughs> I one. That. Uh, I really, I, I have multiple tools hooked up to it. Of course I have blast gates on those, which we, you know, I'll run through so that I'm only have one tool running at a time. And my little, what is it? It's a one and a half horsepower, two horsepower dust collector. I, I have no issues with, with it whatsoever. So to me, this comes down to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Hmm. 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 Well, you know, as much as I love to just recommend everybody get a clear view, because I really think you should have one. Um, it, sometimes in a smaller shop, it just may not be necessary either. There may be other smaller, more practical things uh, for you to do. And, and I've got a clear view that's, that's basically, um, doing the job for an 1800 square foot shop, you know, so it is a powerful monster machine. So it just might be a little bit too much in that situation. It's not to say that it won't work. It's probably right. just so a lot more. His shop is needs. barely bigger than mine. I'm 13 by 22. He said, what, 22 by 16. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a one car garage essentially. Yeah. And it, it would work. Oh my gosh, it would work. But yeah, <laughs> but, it, but would it suck the garage door off? That's what just, I want. Yeah. Just don't uh, have any small children or pets. Walk a by. Negative pressure effect. You might have a problem. So uh, yeah, there you go. Yep. All right. Well, I think we can probably close this off right now. Um, let's see. What do we have here? Oh, I'm all the uh, way at the top of the thing. Why am I all the way up there? <laughs> that's wrong with me um yeah so remember today's show is sponsored by festool at festoolusa.com by the way i just got the new ts55 yeah. Yeah, the Braggart! new the new one that's not even out yet i just got that um and also by microjig at microjig.com i also wanted to mention our recurring donations a big big thank you to everybody who's jumped in on that we really yes. appreciate it um if you want to participate you can go to woodtalkshow.com look in the left hand column and you'll see a couple of links for some recurring donations that you could set up if you want to help support our efforts here at woodtalk and I also wanted to thank a few people who signed up very quickly. Brad, Scott, Kyle, Tony, Mike, David, Chris, Barry, Robert, Tobias, and Jeffrey. Thank you, everybody, for signing up. We really appreciate it. And in the future, if you do sign up for these recurring donations, we do want to thank you. Let me know for sure if you do not want your last name said, because I really want to give people uh, credit for this, and I like saying their last name and messing yeah, it up. You could be any Brad, Scott, Kyle, Tony, Mike, David, Chris, Barry, Robert, Tobias, and Jeffrey. That is so true. That is so yes. true. So let me know if you don't want your name, if you want to remain anonymous or something like that, but I will say your name if you don't specify otherwise. Uh, so yeah, I guess let's do the contact info and get the heck out of here. All right. Well, folks, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do it by Skype. Our username is Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Leave us a just a, a message you know maybe you want to respond to one of these things that we talked about today uh maybe you just want to prank call us that's fine too mm-hmm. you probably won't play that one though uh you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com you can even leave us a comment over on our woodtalk facebook page and if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes don't forget you're always going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com excellent all right well have a great week everybody thanks for listening we always appreciate it and we'll talk to you later yep thanks guys. see you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.